Hello and welcome to the Boy November podcast. It is the 12th of January and uh, yeah, a week back at work today uh, or this week and yeah, it's it's all good so far in 2019. I think in, in previous years um, I was always so busy coming up to Christmas and then January came around and nothing much was happening. So, so this year I've actually planned a number of things for the new year, January and, and beyond. Uh, a number of t- activities in terms of with my, my boys, with my wider family at work as well and also in the community as well here in Creaseland, County Donegal. So um, that's that's all good. Uh, so lots of things happening, lots of things happening shortly and uh, in uh, over the next few weeks, which um, which I'll talk about over subsequent podcasts. And uh, even the daffodils are starting to sprout up as well. This year, for the first time ever, actually, I planted some daffodils around the end of November. I absolutely love daffodils. They're my favourite flowers of all. And I just love how they signify the, the beginning of spring and, and the new year. And the, I just love love the, the, the colour, the brightness, uh, how they just um, brighten up the whole, the whole place after, uh, after, I suppose, the barrenness of winter. So, yeah, this year, I suppose it's it's also about uh, planning something as well and planting things. So I did plant the daffodil bulbs in at the end of November, just after my birthday, actually. And yeah, they're starting to sprout up now, which is really exciting. <laughs> and I just have them at my front door and a few at my back door as well. And it's uh, it's nice when I come into the house uh, to just notice how they're getting a little bit bigger and growing every day and... Uh, I'm just really looking forward to when they actually flower as well. Yeah. So this is episode five of the Boy November podcast. And if you have been following the podcasts up uh, to date, then you will know that uh, I mentioned last week that this week would be uh, about my brother Seamus. So, so yeah, this is episode five and it's called Our Fella. So, my brother Seamus, he was born on the 16th of January 1965. So yeah, his 53rd birthday will be coming up now on, on Wednesday. So so that's why I want to focus on him this week. So yeah, uh, as I mentioned in previous podcasts as well, January is a, is a month of remembrance for, for me and, and my family. So Seamus's birthday, my mum's birthday on the 20th of January, and then both my father's anniversary uh he died this day actually two years ago and my mum's uh, anniversary as well she died five years ago coming up now on the 20th of january so so lots of memories there and lots of remembering at the minute but uh all in a positive way so yeah so seamus uh he was the second child to mick and Brady, and uh like his, like his big brother, he was a home birth, just actually across the road from our home place where my mother and father uh, lived for a while in a house, in a row of houses called Trainers Villas. Um, so, yeah, he, Seamus, 
would have been almost 11 years older than me before I came along. So my consciousness really of Seamus would only be from around when he was around 15 plus maybe. Um, and then I, I've gathered other bits and pieces from my older brothers and sisters um, about what he was like growing up. So I know he was a very exuberant character growing up, very strong. Um, I know his one of his best friends, uh, whenever he sees me, uh, he usually comes along to, to Seamus' anniversary or if I see him anytime up in Burn, he always like talks about how Seamus was the strongest man in Burn, how he had these big barrel arms. So, uh, yeah, he was when he, he was growing up and in right up till his early 20s, he was a really strong guy. He played Gaelic football for Burn. He would have played wing back, I think would have been his position. And as far as I know, he was a very feisty and temperamental player as well. So, um... Yeah, well, well, what do I remember about him, I suppose, is um, one thing that he, he used to play football with me at the, at the side of our house. And the thing about Seamus would, when we played, he would give me an, a 9-0 lead. Uh, we were playing soccer just, and uh, there was a wee bit of a, a green patch, a long green patch at the side of our house at that time. And he would give me a 9-0 lead, and obviously it was the first to 10. And uh, yeah, he usually won. 10-9 so but it was nice of him to give me that 9-0 lead another memory I have of me and Seamus is uh, one time I'm not quite sure what age we were maybe 12-13 and we cycled with a, a neighbour of ours um, <clears throat> all the way out to a beach uh, called Cranford which is just out towards Kilkeel here in count, uh, up in County Down um, which would be a, quite a good cycle for um, I suppose a 12 year old and uh, yeah that was one summer one summer day a beautiful summer day and it was that was a fun adventure I suppose really and another thing I remember about what uh, I think that myself and Seamus done was along with my dad we walked from our house in Burn out the the back roads to Restrever and then on up to the big stone up to Clockmore and uh, again it's, it was a, it was a Sunday, and it was again a beautiful day, and we walked all the way back. I'm not 100 percent sure if we walked all the way back. We might have got a bus from Restrever to Warren Point, but even the self that in itself was uh, a big walk from Burn right up to the Big Stone, maybe yeah five five miles to get to Restrever, and then like a really st steep climb up to the to the Big Stone. Yeah, um, what else do I remember about Seamus? Um, he was a really smart guy, really intelligent. And one thing I remember is uh, Sunday evenings, uh, there used to be quizzes on on RT on a Sunday evening. And one was Murphy's Microquism. And I looked this up. It was on between 1983 to 1985. So it only had a run of three years altogether. Uh which I was actually surprised about. I thought Murphy's Microquism went on forever and ever and ever, but it actually only had a run of three seasons. So, um, yeah, we used to watch that. And then we used to watch Where in the World with Teresa Lowe. And that was actually on from 1987 until 1996. I looked that up during the week, so I didn't think that went on for as long. But, uh, yeah, we 
watched those quizzes on a Sunday evening. Uh, one of us took kept the scores, myself, Seamus, uh, probably one of my sisters, my mum maybe would have joined in, maybe one of my other brothers as well. So, um, yeah, and nine out of ten times, Seamus always, always won. Um, so, yeah, uh, smart guy, fit, strong, exuberant guy, yeah. So, yeah, when Seamus then was, was 16 years old, um, like a lot of 16 year, year olds, I suppose he was quite boisterous, maybe a little bit out of control. And um, I don't know around about then anyway, I think I think I have this kind of memory of him, of the, the police, the RIC coming to the door about him, about Seamus maybe having taken someone's car and driven it somewhere. Um, that's a bit of a hazy memory, but I think that's what happened anyway. But yeah, but when Seamus was 16 then, he would have been hospitalised for the first time in a psychiatric hospital. So, and that would have been in Downpatrick in uh, the Downshire, Downshire Hospital, a psychiatric hospital in Downpatrick, which would be quite a distance from, from our house, almost maybe 45, 50 minutes away. Um, which is a long way when you don't have a car, actually. Um, I suppose, yeah, my mum, she would have been in and out of hospital, in and out of psychiatric hospital, ever since, really, my eldest brother was born. So, for probably, uh, from she was kind of in her mid-20s, 26, maybe 27 onwards, she would have been in and out of, of psychiatric hospitals as well. So, um... Yeah, she was diagnosed with clinical depression, possibly uh, bipolar disorder as well, or manic depression as it, as it was known. And that's also then what uh, Seamus was diagnosed with when he was 16, manic depression or, or bipolar, um, as it's known now. So, yeah, I suppose, yeah, the treatment for bipolar disorder, uh, as it was then, and hasn't changed a whole lot since, is, is a range of psycho psychoactive substances. And generally the most popular treatment then, as it is now, is lithium. So lithium is, is a salt, and psychiatrists and scientists uh, realised um, that... It's somewhat of a mood mood stabilizer. So I was doing a little bit of research during the week there, and uh, back in 1970, the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration in the United States, first approved lithium as a psychiatric medication. So, which is interesting. Um, it really only had, I suppose, I don't I don't know exactly when. Lithium was approved uh, in Ireland or in the in the UK and or in Northern Ireland, um, but I presume it was something around this, the nineteen seventies as well. I suppose in, in line with the US. So really, we only had um, 10, 11 years of general use before Seamus um, you, you began using the the lithium. So lithium has a number of side effects, quite a range of side effects. Uh, 
uh, shakiness, uh, particularly in, in your hand, arms and hands. Uh, acne was another one. And with prolonged um, use, uh, lithium creates um, renal or renal imp- impairment or um, kidney kidney mal- kidney malfunction. So, yeah, I suppose the general medical hypothesis back then, as it pretty much is now in terms of psychiatric circles, is that um, when you become depressed or or have bipolar, you uh, there is a chemical imbalance going on in the brain. And medication then, such as lithium, counteracts this imbalance. So, one wee second. Now, yeah, so I, I was reading this article during the week as well. It was It's by a guy called Johan Harry, uh, H-A-R-I. Um, it was just up on the Huffington Post. And Johan is... Uh, is a social science graduate of Cambridge University. And Johan had depression for a long time. And he wanted to do some research into um, into the causes and the treatments around depression. So anyway, um, in the article, Johan talks about the Hamilton, Hamilton scale, which is the scientific measure for measuring depression. So the Hamilton scale goes from zero right up to 59, where zero is you're happy out, you couldn't be any happier. Um, And 59 then is you couldn't be uh, any less happy. So you're actually suicidal when you're at 59 points. So various things, um, if you do happen to go into a psychiatrist, uh, they, they will more than likely be using this Hamilton scale and various things that you would tell the psychiatrist over a number of meetings um, would be things like improved sleep sleep patterns, for example, would give you a plus six on the Hamilton scale. Whereas all the research as well has shown that chemicals such as anti, uh, various antidepressants and other chemicals only on average give you a plus 1.8 on the Hamilton scale. So... So there's lots of things, obviously, that help you in terms of your mental health. And certainly chemicals, antidepressants, medication do help, that's for sure. But other things help lot, lot, lots more. So um, I suppose just to say at this point, uh, you know, I would never encourage anybody to go off medication if you're on medication. Uh, it has to be properly supervised uh, by your by your doctor. If you're if you are on on any psychiatric medication, if you if you are going to to come off it. So, um, yeah, my my only point really is there's lots of other things that also help and possibly help much better ways as well and give you a bigger boost on in terms of the Hamilton Hamilton scale as well. So yeah, uh, Johan Harry, he also talks about the nine major causes of depression in this article. And the nine major causes of, of depression, he points out two of which are biological and seven of which are non-biological or social or societal causes. So I'll just go through those very quickly. So 
Yeah. Um, causes of depression can be, so first of all, um, abuse may be one current or, or past could be sexual, emotional, physical abuse that may have happened in your childhood or may currently be happening. Uh, medications can cause depression as well. So side effects of various medications that you may be on, uh, any types of medication, any kind of physical ailments or psychiatric ailments as well. So some of which can cause, some of which side effects which may be causing of depression. Uh, another cause of major cause of depression then is conflict. So being in conflict with other people around you, people that uh, are important in your life, people at work, your family and so on. Um, fourth major cause, these are no particular order, um, but another major cause then is death or loss, any great loss in particular. So yeah, I kind of touched on that on an earlier episode in terms of my own separation and um, the loss uh, I would have felt, you know, after the separation and the divorce and so on. So, so any types of, of death of someone close to you uh, or, you know, a major loss in your life, a loss of your home or um, the ending of a, of a, of a, a long term relationship that can obviously lead, lead to depression as well. Your genetics then, your genetics may be a cause as well. And it's not very straightforward how our genetics may be a cause or a factor in terms of our depression but that that is one of the, the those nine causes of depression and then major life events so a new job changing jobs graduating moving to school uh, getting married losing your job getting divorced as i mentioned already or retiring from your job as well i know a number of people who who once they retired, not only have physical ailments catch up on them, but also uh, may go into a bit of a depression. So any kind of major change in your life can be a cause of, of depression. Uh, then the seven, number seven then is personal problems, uh, perhaps social isolation, family estrangement, you know, being broken up from your family for whatever reason, um, you know, feeling isolated. Um that's another major cause of depression. Uh, number eight then is serious illness. You know, when you're just diagnosed with a serious illness, that can obviously cause depression. And then number nine is substance use. So um, using legal substances, I suppose, like alcohol, for example, or or prescribed medication in an illegal way or are using illegal substances as well. So any sort of substance use then also can have the side effect of um, de uh, causing depression as well. So so there we go. So um, of the nine major causes of depression, only two are, um, are caused by uh, some sort of chemical uh, usage, so the substance use or the use of, of medication. And then you have the possible genetic cause as well. So, um, yeah, all the other causes then are are social causes, things that happen in your life, things that challenge us in our lives causes depression. Yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah. So, so Harry talks about how the WHO, WHO the World Health Organization, 
has constantly over the last number of years um, in their publications, in their research, stated that there is a great need or a huge need to look at the deeper causes of depression uh, as opposed to just the biological causes. So, um, yeah, Harry met, uh, in his article, he talks about meeting a guy called Dr. Vincent uh, Felitti, F-E-L-I-T-T-I, um, who was an American researcher in the mid-1980s, and he did a lot of research around depression and anxiety. And, yeah, I suppose what he found was that it, major causes of depression and anxiety are caused by events, events in our lives. Um, so, yeah, I, I I suppose really that's it. You know, these events in our lives cause us, us pain. And, and that pain, I suppose, is not irrational. It actually has, has a cause, I suppose, is, is what I'm trying to say here and what this, this article is trying to say as well. So our depression and anxiety uh, is a response to what is happening around us. So um, whether that can be treated, certainly it can be, certainly medication can play a role in the treatment of um, psychiatric problems, mental health problems, that's for sure. I'm not denying that, but I'm also, I suppose, what I'm saying in this piece is that there's so many other causes, so many other uh, other possible treatments, benefits that you can uh, accrue to your mental health um, in addition to or outside medication. But yeah, so back to Seamus and, and basically why I talked all about that was because yeah, Seamus didn't really receive any other treatment uh, apart from the medication. So, yeah, he would have been on, on lithium. And, uh, yeah, he would have went into psychiatric hospital at various times when he was, usually when he was in a very kind of elated or high or manic state, Sometimes when he was in a very low state, but usually the admissions would have taken place when um, he would have been in the manic state. So, yeah, as I mentioned, the first psychiatric hospital that he would have went to was in Downpatrick. The health services rearranged themselves at various times. Um, then we would have went to, or Seamus would have went to Armagh, the psychiatric hospital in Armagh at different times, and then Craigavon as well, the psychiatric unit in the uh, Craigavon area hospital as well. So, um, and as I mentioned earlier as well, we never had a car growing up. My man and dad never, never drove. And uh, so we always would have went to, to visit Seamus um, and to visit my mum as well. Um, we always would have got lifts with, with neighbours and, and friends, friends of my dad. Um, yeah, I remember one friend, work colleague of my dad, he had this little Morris Minor, and I remember going to Downpatrick to visit my mum or, or Seamus, and uh, it uh, in the back of the Morris Minor, it was it was pretty cool, actually, really enjoyed that. <laughs> it was a really cool car, so... Um, 
Yeah, so going to visit uh, Seamus Inn. So sometimes you'll go into particular wards that would be locked. You'd have to knock the door and the psychiatric nurse would come and open the door. Those were times maybe, I suppose, when maybe Seamus may have been signed in. So when he was maybe particularly elated, particularly in a, in a, in a high manic state. So you would go in uh, to the psychiatric ward to, on a visit and uh, yeah, you'd see other patients there, some in in manic states, some in dazed states. Um, it was, I suppose, for a, a, a child, I suppose, I don't know exactly when I first had this experience of going to, to, to visit my family members in a psychiatric hospital, but um, it possibly could have been from about uh, six onwards. Um, not 100% sure. So, yeah, going in to that environment, it was a little bit scary. Yeah, for sure, it was a little bit scary. Now, what I remember is all the psychiatric nurses were always very welcoming and they did always... Uh, as far as I remember, talking uh, to Seamus, they always did uh, a really good job as well. Um, so they did their best in this in this situation. Um, but I always kind of wonder now, you know, how healthy is is that situation? So um, certainly, average stay, I suppose, for for Seamus maybe would have been I don't know five or six weeks maybe, and the mood would have stabilised maybe. His medication would have changed. The doctors would have observed um, his response to to new medication, and he would have come out in a more, I suppose, great, with greater equilibrium, more stable, I suppose. So, so that in itself, that's was certainly a positive. So, but in terms of long term development, uh, I do I do know there was there would be and there still would be group. Um, group therapy there are groups where the patients come and talk maybe to um, either a therapist or a psychologist um, either one to one maybe and then and then the, the, they would have the, the groups as well so uh, I'm not quite sure now if, uh, if shame is really ever availed of that of that service much um, but uh, yeah psychiatric services uh, I think pretty much the world over now are, are, are just focus on on the medication side of things and getting the balance right. So, so that's a medical medical model. And I'm not saying that medical model isn't helpful uh, or, or that, that medicine cannot play a role, but the medical model is only like a small part of, of who we are. And it's, it's important, I suppose, to uh, look at other treatments and, um, yeah, uh, it's 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 important to to look at the whole person really and to um, get other supports in your life as well outside of the medication as well because that's I suppose when the difficulty takes place when you go out of psychiatric hospital and you go back into your normal life what sort of supports do you have there you know what's your living conditions like do you live alone do you have a social network do you do you have a job or do you have something that you do each day as well? Like, so 
these are all important things. Exercise is hugely important as well. Like exercise, even walking, getting out in the fresh air has a huge, uh, there is literally loads and loads of research around how exercise can have a huge beneficial um, impact on your mental health. And uh, and that's maybe uh, something that uh, that we'll look at in a, in a future, in a future episode. So, yeah. Yeah, there's um, there's a book by uh, an Irish uh, doctor called Terry Lynch, and Terry um, is a psychiatrist as well, and he he has written a book. He's written a couple of books anyway, but his first book is called Beyond Prozac, and he really just outlines all of the various the main various psychiatric conditions. And the various treatments that are available for the each particular condition, and the various research that shows the benefits or, or otherwise of the, of those treatments. So, yeah, I think yeah, I suppose it, it's it's fair to say that uh, Terry Lynch has kind of moved away from the medical model, and uh, I think as far as I know, he trained then as. Uh, as a, as a therapist, as a counselor as well. So, um, yeah, he's an interesting guy to to follow on 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 Twitter as well now because he has that experience of being a psychiatrist, but also someone then who who focuses then on on counselling work and talk therapy as well. So, so yeah, he's an interesting guy to check out. Terry Lynch is his name beyond Prozac. So. Um, yeah, so back to, back to Seamus then, and uh, yeah, so so Seamus would have been in and out of psychiatric hospital. He would have had bits and pieces of work here and there, working as a labourer, uh, various building sites. At one point, he just up sticks and went to to England, and we didn't know he was going and. Um, we, yeah, no, I think we did know he was going. Actually, I remember him packing his suitcase, but when he went there, we didn't hear from him for quite a few weeks, maybe a month or two. And uh, I suppose, you know, obviously there were no mobile phones back then. So, um, but, uh, so it wouldn't, you wouldn't have been texting or phoning people every week, your family every week if you did go somewhere. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. I suppose he never thought of phoning us, um, and I do remember him then, you know, we were kind of getting quite worried. My mum was getting very worried about him, that she hadn't heard from him. And I remember then being in our back hall <clears throat> where our phone was and looking out the, into the backyard. And uh, I remember seeing Seamus then one, one day uh, just walking around the side of our house and in through the back door. And he was home. He was home from England. And uh, yeah. I was happy. I was happy about that. Happy that he was home and happy that he was safe as well. Yeah. So that was, I suppose, the cycle of of Seamus's life really for a good ten years. So uh, working away, you know, going out, you know, with his friends, uh, and then other times then into the cycle then of. Um, elation, called the psychiatric hospital, uh, stabilizing, and then um, 
and then periods of depression as well. So, uh, and then that cycle continued as I suppose for perhaps maybe about nine years. So, and then when he was about 25 then, yeah, he, yeah, he had no, no work for about a whole year and yeah, I think he got really, really depressed. Um, there was no lift in the mood at all. There was no, um, there was no period of elation in, uh, for, for a whole year and, uh, you know, he wouldn't go out anywhere. He didn't, you know, he didn't have a job, so he wasn't going out anywhere. He got very anxious as well, worried, worried quite a lot, quite a bit about kind of small, small things. He uh, he wouldn't have been sleeping very well either. Um, I suppose I kind of knew this. Well, first of all, <clears throat> you know, there's five boys in our house. We all slept up in the big room. Uh, well, it wasn't overly big, but it was bigger than the other two bedrooms. And uh, yeah, there was five of us up in the, in the one big room. And uh, yeah, I think there, there was a bunk. So it was on the top bunk. There was a double bed. There was a single bed. And there wasn't room for very much else. So... Um, yeah, I suppose he kind of would have noticed that Seamus wouldn't sleep, wasn't sleeping. You would have also noticed he was falling asleep on the couch during the day as well. So obviously that's, that's another sign that, that you're not, that you're not sleeping at, at night. And I remember like just coming in and he would be resting his head just on, on the armrest on the, on the sofa. Um, so yeah, so, so all of that then was happening and, uh, I suppose we were getting quite, anxious and uh, ourselves and worried about him and we you know as a family we were trying to get him to go into psychiatric hospital again for a bit like uh, would have been our ma I think at the time and you know he wasn't keen he wasn't keen on going back he didn't want to uh, go into hospital at that per- that particular time um, yeah so um yeah, he, the other thing, he was losing a bit of weight as well, as I said, like, you know, he was always a big, strong man, and at that time he he was losing weight, and now, um, another side effect of medication, of the medication of lithium in particular, is that you, your weight can change, it either can go up or it can go down, like, so, so that was possibly uh, just a side effect of the medication that he was on. But uh, I think he was actually worried then. He was worried that he, he had something physically, seriously wrong with him as well. So that he started to worry a lot, a lot about that. Like, so, um, yeah, and I suppose I know all this because I suppose he, he he told me in that year in particular, he would have told me quite a bit about what was going on with him. So, um, yeah, he would have been twenty. Uh yeah, twenty five or so. I would have been. Uh, it would have been fourteen, fifteen, and uh, yeah. In the last few months, then um, yeah. So this would have been nineteen ninety one. This would have been say maybe January nineteen ninety one. Maybe uh, let's say it was. Uh, yeah, he would have talked about ending his life, about ending it all. That he had enough of feeling the way he did and I responded like as well a lot of people respond I just told him to to snap out of it it's 
going to be okay. Don't worry, you'll come out of it again, like you you always do, and you can, you know, you know, make a better life for yourself again once you once you come out of it. So, yeah, so that continued on then, and um, over the last year, Seamus's life, he got, you know, uh, considerably more depressed, I suppose. Uh, and then uh, on Thursday, the 14th of March, 1991, uh, I can remember coming home from school and there's no sign of Seamus on, on the sofa. Um, yeah, he, I remember we, we had a, a dog, we had a wee dog called Speedy and I used to, to walk him coming home from school and sometimes Seamus would would uh, would come with me on the walk, like, you know, but he wasn't there, Seamus wasn't there then when I came home from school that evening and uh yeah my mum was was very worried um but I, I wasn't really that worried just at, at that point um and I remember going to the youth club in Bern that that evening and yeah it was all pretty normal um scored a rake of goals in the indoor soccer that night and <laughs> yeah I'm sure I did and then I came home then from the youth club, maybe about nine, half nine, and my my mum and dad were were still were still up, obviously, and they were they were considerably more worried at that point. Then I, I remember my sister was there as well; she was just home from Liverpool, I think, for for Paddy's weekend at that stage. Um, my other two brothers, my eldest brother, would have been married at this stage, so he wasn't there. My other two brothers would have been about summer as well so but I remember and then my other sister was she was away in, in Jersey I think at the time living so yeah so I remember uh, my sister my mum my dad and me just sitting up that evening we sat up for a long time till about I would say about two o'clock in the morning just waiting to see if he would come home and yeah we were probably ringing around different people uh, to see if they'd seen Seamus at all that day and nothing was coming up at all. So, yeah, um, yeah, the next day, Friday, Friday the 15th of, of March then, um, yeah, I didn't go to school. My mum just said uh, I didn't have to go to school that day. So I remember myself and my brother, Michael, going to walking across the back fields up behind our house to see if there was any sign of Seamus anywhere. So these were fields uh, where I had another great memory of myself and Seamus uh, for a number of years. Walking across those fields, Seamus would have um, uh, a bow saw with him and we would be going to uh, cut down a Christmas tree in the forest away across the fields. And uh, that's how we got our Christmas tree for a number of years. So uh, we would have uh, just brought that tree back home and put it up um so yeah myself and, and michael and we we walked across these fields looking for for seamus and uh yeah there was no sign of him so so we come back home anyway and uh, i remember our gp dr o'tierney was at the house and uh i remember him asking me then uh had seamus said anything to me and uh, yeah, I told him that he, that Seamus had talked about ending his life, and 
but that I didn't think that he would actually do it at all. I just kind of dismissed that idea out, outright. And I remember he just kind of, he just looked at me and he didn't didn't really say too much at all. So I suppose there was, um, you know, we were kind of trying to believe. There was chat in, in, in our house about that, how Seamus may have gone to England again. Um, but yeah, I suppose that, that was just a hope really. Um, because he, well, first of all, didn't take anything with him, but also, um, but also, you know, when he went to England that couple of years beforehand, he would have been in an elated state. Now this time he was very depressed. And I remember maybe when Dr. Attorney left that morning and I went out to the kitchen, my dad been out in the kitchen just doing something, making tea or something, doing dishes or something. So, yeah, he wasn't at work either, now when I think about it. So, obviously, something, you know, my dad went to work every single day when he was working. Well, he didn't ever really have a day off at all. Even when he had holidays, he went and did other jobs. So, um, yeah, so he was... At home, he was out in the kitchen, and I remember going out to him, and I noticed he was crying, and I, that was the first time I'd ever seen my father cry, I'm not sure if I seen him cry after that either, but he, uh, he obviously knew, you know, what we were all about to find out, and he had, he knew what was, he knew what was going on, so... Yeah, the rest of that day then was really just streams of neighbours and relations calling in, phone constantly ringing, um, making phone calls as well, like just to see if anybody had seen him. Like, and uh, I think, yeah, somebody did come and say they did see him and walking down towards Warren Point or something, or or someone had seen him as well. Um, Someone had seen him coming out of the chapel, out of the graveyard as well. I think I think that was it as well. So, yeah, but I remember answering the, the phone in our house in that back hall where it was, and I remember thinking, hoping that he would come around the corner again like he had done a couple of years previously when he come back when he had come back from from England. So that was the hope anyway, but. Yeah, still no sign of him for the rest of that day. And then Saturday came around, Saturday the 16th of March, 1991. And uh, the people of Bern uh, organised a search party for for our Seamus. And uh, I went on that search party with uh, two good friends of mine, uh, fellas that I went to, to primary school with and secondary school with Sean Ward and, and Mark Curtis. And I remember the three of us, yeah, it started out around the community centre and uh, we walked, people went in all sorts of different directions around around Burn and uh, myself and Sean and Mark, we walked down the, the back road, as it was called, and um, the low road, it's also called, rather. Um, um and we walked down past the waterworks. Um, and I remember just, you know, looking for clues. <laughs> you know, Seamus smoked and I was looking in to see if there was any 
uh, packets of 20 regal in the ditch or anything. I think I did see something like that. But uh, I remember when I got to the waterworks that my mother's cousin was there. And I remember him just, just kind of looking at me as well, like, and he didn't really say too much either. So we continued on anyway, myself and Sean and Mark, and we went up the, the Donegagai Road. And I remember I had a picture of Seamus with me, and we called into houses, and we showed people Seamus and asked if they'd seen them. And, and then we asked to look in people's outhouses as well, and we went into people's outhouses and see if we could see any trace of him. And we continued on up the Donegagai Road and turned left up the Ballydesland Road. Um... <laughs> And then just back down into Burn again, back into to down to the community centre and back home again. And uh, yeah, no no sign of him. But uh, it felt good to be out looking. It felt good to be out looking and and to have the whole scene like the whole community out looking as well. Um, which was an amazing feeling of uh, of support as well. Um, and I just remember coming home then, and this like huge big pot of stew was on. And having some stew that someone obviously had made and, and brought. And uh, again, the house was thronged. And I remember then having the idea of, of making a poster. Uh, so this was back in 1991. We didn't have computers or printers or anything like that. Like So I was doing this little um, hand-drawn poster up in 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 the big room up in my the boys' bedroom and uh, I had the picture of Seamus I was going to like stick that on and maybe get it photocopied was the idea and put it up in the shops around Warren Point so yeah I was I was working away at that and they our house is tiny like so basically as it's a sitting room and then the three bedrooms are just directly off off the the sitting room so the door from the sitting room to the big room was opened. I was just up in the big room, I think by myself, to draw on my, my wee poster. And uh, I think it was coming up to... Um, it was coming up to about quarter to seven, I think. But I remember that because there was some chat about whether we should be going to Mass or something, like, you know, to pray for Seamus or whatever, that Saturday evening. And Saturday evening Mass was at half seven, like, and then I remember the doorbell rang and... I could hear that, yeah, it was the local priest, it was Father Woods, who came into the house, and I was thinking, jeez, he's he's here, and Mass is soon starting, so uh, uh, I just sat, I remember just sitting on the bed, possibly could have been James's bed, actually, when I was thinking about it, just sitting on his bed, and... Uh, I could just hear the conversation then. It kind of went quiet, and my mum and dad must have been in the, in the in the living room, in the sitting room, and I could just hear Father Woods just saying that uh, that Seamus had been found, uh, his body had been found rather in uh, well, it was in the waterworks, and um, yeah, I don't know. I remember just kind of dropping the the poster just sitting there for a wee minute and uh, I got up from the bed. I remember the first person I saw was my cousin's boyfriend at the time and he was wearing this leather jacket and I remember just crying on his shoulder on the leather jacket and uh, 
and then yeah, I don't really remember too much else. Went down into the living room, and my brothers and sisters and mum or dad were there, and yeah. Aye, and the news, I suppose, just uh, we just tried to comprehend that what what had uh, what had just happened, and I remember then my cousin, my cousin Richie was there, and he had just he had actually been one of the ones who had found James's body in the waterworks, um, him and another friend of. Uh, of Seamus's Paddy, they they both find the body, and uh, Richie just briefly told us the story about what how they'd found him, and uh, yeah, it just took. <laughs> it was just in a daze, I suppose, in a complete daze, and there were so many people there, and yeah, it was. I don't know. It was it was kind of a, a relief to know what had actually happened, but obviously, you know, it was hugely heartbreaking and wrenching. And I remember as well as this uh, feeling in my stomach as well. I suppose even that it was this this heart wrenching, gut wrenching rather feeling in my stomach every time I thought about it. Um, and you know, you're when you're in that kind of space and there's so many people around you you're chatting to so many people and you get distracted and then you have this moment then where you kind of realise again what had just happened and yeah I remember that kind of gut wrenching gut turning feeling uh, of realising what had just happened so yeah the next day Sunday the 17th of March Paddy's Day I remember we all went up to the morgue in Daisy Hill Hospital in Newry and we seen Seamus then for the first time, and he just looked pretty normal, actually. I know he had a kind of a bruise on his forehead, and that was about it, really. And, uh, yeah, I remember then, myself and my three brothers, the remaining three brothers, four of us then, we, uh, yeah, we carried Seamus's coffin, and I suppose that was the first time I had ever carried a coffin and I was wearing Ardan's leather jacket which was a little bit big on me and uh, obviously leather jackets were de, de rigueur for the time and uh, I yeah yeah the four of us the four brothers four remaining brothers then carried carried Seamus home so and we had the wake and so on and so forth and uh, I don't know I think the, the funeral was maybe the next day not a hundred percent sure, but I think the funeral was next day, and yeah, again just carrying, carrying Seamus, the four of us carrying Seamus into the chapel and carrying him then up to, up to the grave then afterwards, and uh, yeah, the feeling I suppose as I mentioned was the turmoil was over. I suppose to a certain extent we had known what had happened and that's good I think that's good in terms of closure but then another type of turmoil begins um, another type of turmoil begins and that's the turmoil then of thinking about what you could have done could have changed could have 
said differently, done differently, you know, in those, that last year, in those last few months of Seamus's life, when he talked to me, could I have done more? Could I have got other people to help more? Um, so that sort of turmoil begins then. And, uh, and that sort of hole, there's, there's a hole then as well. And I know we continually have this hole to, to, to this day in, in our family that, you know, that there's, there's always someone missing, even though it's, uh, it's coming up on 28 years since our fella left us, but it's, yeah, there's that, there's that hole, there's that hole there and that turmoil continues. So, um, yeah, but there's all, there's also like anger as well. There's certainly anger, you know, whereas, you know, I suppose suicide is, uh, you know, well, first of all, there's debate about does the person commit suicide or, you know, this type of language. Is it something that they consciously do? And uh, I, I, I don't know, you know, and the, the, I think the politically correct term now is that when you talk about someone who, who has died by suicide as opposed to someone who commits suicide. So, but, and obviously someone who is that, badly depressed his their 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 thinking is is certainly hugely hazy and, and blurred but there is there is a decision nonetheless as well so so I tend to think or I tend to say that Seamus I still tend to say that Seamus did commit suicide uh, that he did make some sort of decision even though that that decision was 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 blurred by how he was feeling and how his mind set was at that particular time. But, um, yeah, so he did make a decision, I suppose, to end the turmoil that he was going through. But, and I suppose why, you know, I, I suppose I, I understand why, the, you know, the, the research says, you know, to say, you know, that he, it, 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 it's not really a decision that he, he just, it's that, that they die by suicide, that people die by suicide. It's, 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 it's because, um, you know, they're not thinking straight, I suppose, and I, and I completely understand that, like, you know, but there is, there is cert a certain decision that is, that is made there. There is a decision that is made, and it's, um, it's a decision to, to earn the, the ter turmoil, I suppose, that, the depressed person is going through the the distressed person as well is going through before they actually commit suicide, and uh, but unfortunately it is it's a permanent solution to what I suppose always is is a temporary problem. Like um, even those people's problems obviously can be can be huge and and difficult, very difficult to work through. I suppose I'm I'm always hopeful that there is always a way out for people. There is always a way to get better. There is a way to to make your life better. You know, I don't know, it begins with you know talking, talking about how you're feeling. And, you know, thankfully I've never been at that stage where I've got into that dark, dark, dark place. 
Uh, but I know I've been depressed and feeling low at various times in my life in response to various situations that, that I have gone through. And I know what has helped me come out of that is, is, is first of all, by, by, by talking and, uh, and building, building a plan and getting people around you to support you and, and getting a plan, I suppose, to, to make to make your life that little bit better. But I know it's also easier said than done, and it is it is hugely difficult. So, um, but there is, it is there is always a way out. I want to believe that anyway. Like that, there is there is always a way out. Um, in uh, from that darkness, uh, there is always a possibility of making making things better. Uh, but unfortunately, suicide removes those possibilities because suicide then is the end. So, yeah, the other, I suppose, kind of unfortunate and sad thing is that there is also some research to suggest that when people actually do commit suicide, that they actually are on the turn, that they have actually come out of the darkest place. Uh, and the thinking behind it, I suppose, is that when you are so, so, so depressed that you don't even have the energy to go and kill yourself, um, that you can't lift yourself out of it. So there is some suggestion, it may, it may not be true, that, you know, once you are actually on the turn to become better, you know, to feeling better, uh, that's perhaps when you're the most vulnerable um, in terms of suicide. So, um, which isn't really kind of helpful <laughs> in terms of me, like you know, in terms of my relationship with Seamus, because in those those few months before he died, he did, he was talking to me, I suppose, and uh, it's it's kind of sad. It's kind of sad that uh, that maybe he was starting to feel better, uh, and that it didn't. He didn't, he didn't hold on. He didn't hold on. So, yeah, uh, I suppose, yeah, it's, it's 28 years now since, since our fella left us. And it's, yeah, I, I suppose I, I've, I've come to terms with it. Like, uh, you know, in, in as much as you, you can come to terms with your, your brother dying, particularly dying by, by suicide, um, it's still not easy, you know, you still feel that hole, you still feel that sadness. You know, but that anger, I suppose, is, has dissipated as well over the years. Um, and I suppose, yeah, that's just, I suppose, where I want to to leave it, like, because I know uh, just so many people, you know, people I, I would know, you know, directly and indirectly and people in community up at home and in Burn and the surrounding areas and people down here in Donegal and uh, kids at school who, who've lost their, their parents and it's just uh, yeah you know we have the figures the figures are never accurate because you know it's never clear sometimes whether people do die by suicide or not and, and sometimes they're they're marked as as open verdicts um uh, because it's not exactly clear about what 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 happens, what has happened. So, um, 
But yeah, the figures for, for suicide, the official figures anyway, are double the amount of, uh, there's double the amount of death due to suicide as, as compared to people who die on, on the roads, for example. Um, but yeah, we definitely need, we need more services, that's, that's for sure. We need a different type of service, I think. Uh, we need to be looking out for the people around us who are going through tough times and but also if you're there as well, I think it's important to say that there is there is possibilities. There are other, you know, you don't always have to go through that darkness. Life can get better, I suppose. Life, there's possibilities in life. There is always possibilities in life. And I understand when you're feeling depressed and you're feeling at that low, you don't... You, it's difficult to see those possibilities, but I suppose the message, this message, I suppose, which is a message of hope, I hope, hopefully is, and I want to leave it on a positive, uh, a positive note, that there is possibilities of a better future. Always, always, always the possibilities of a better future. It certainly might not be easy to get to that better future, but there is possibilities and it starts with talking to someone about it. So, so anybody who's listening to this, please, who is feeling that low, talk, talk to someone and men in particular, we're absolutely terrible at talking to people about how we're feeling. We need to get it out there. We cannot deal with yeah, these difficult dark thoughts alone it is much easier to get support and we need to get those thoughts we need to express we need to get those thoughts out there we need to express how we're feeling in order to for us to make sense of what's going on inside us so so that's really just where I want to leave it um, so please, if you are feeling lonely, feeling down, feeling isolated, feeling low, uh, please go and, uh, and talk, talk to someone, find someone, someone close to you or talk, you know, go to a counsellor, go to your doctor, go to a counsellor, pick up the phone and, uh, and phone the Samaritans. Yeah, the Samaritans, remember actually the Samaritans coming around after after Seamus had left us, after Seamus died. And uh, yeah, they were nice guys. They were nice guys to talk to. They came and visited us, visit, visited us at home. So, I, you know, that was a service I don't think many people know about. Uh, so do talk to people, like pick up that phone and talk to the Samaritans. That can be a fantastic first step, whatever way you're feeling. Talk, 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 talk to someone, please. So that is where I want to leave it now. Um, that's just over the hour. I knew it would be a pretty long one this week. And thank you if you have managed to, to stick in there for the hour. And um, yeah, thank you. Thank you, guys. Thank you for listening. And uh, we'll chat to you next week. Thank you. This has been the... The Boy November podcast, um, 
yeah, you can check out the Boy November podcast on Facebook and and download the Podbean app and uh, and listen in there. Give us an old follow on Podbean, and if you're on Podbean as well, I think you have to make out a you, you're. I think you're given a, a random uh, a random username. Uh, if you are there, you know come up with your own username would be great or stick a wee photo up so I know who you are I know who's following uh, me that 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 would be great so so thank you guys thank you for listening and we will chat to you uh, we will chat again next week bye 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 bye